Charles Baxter is the author of novels The Feast of Love, nominated for the National Book Award, First Light, Solemn Patsy, Shadow Play, and The Soul Thief, as well as the story collections Believers, Griffin, Harmony of the World, A Relative Stranger, There's Something I Want You to Do, and Through the Safety Net. His stories have been included in the best American short stories. Baxter lives in Minneapolis and has taught at the University of Minnesota and in the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. His upcoming book, The Sun Collective, is expected in November. Charles Baxter, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, you're a writer uh, across uh, different um, forms, uh, short stories, which I believe you're going to, to read from one of your collections now, um, novels, and you write about craft, you edited. Mm -hmm. But let's just hear, it's from the collection, which I love, called Griffin, and just introduce it for us a bit. Uh, okay, and uh, this is the opening of a story uh, called Ghosts, uh, and uh, without giving away what happens in it, uh, I'll simply say that it, it uses uh, an element in fiction which uh, I'm particularly uh, fond of, which is to have two strangers meeting. Out on the front lawn, Melinda was weeding her father's garden with a bird-like metal claw when a car drifted up to the curb. A man with brown hair highlighted with blonde streaks got out on the driver's side. He stood still for a moment, staring at the house as if he owned it and was mulling over possible improvements. In his left hand, he held an apple with teeth marks in it, though the apple was still whole. Melinda had never laid eyes on the man before. Her father's house was located in an affordable but slightly rundown city neighborhood with its share of characters. They either gawked at you or wouldn't meet your gaze. Many of them were mutterers who deadlocked their deadwalked their way past other pedestrians in pursuit of their oddball destinations. She returned to her weeding. Hot day, the man said, loudly, as if comments on the weather might interest her. Melinda glanced at him again. With a narrow Eric Claptonish face and dressed in blue jeans and a plain white shirt, he was on his way to handsomeness without quite arriving there. The apple was probably an accessory for nerves, like a chewed pencil behind the ear. The baby monitor on the ground beside her began to squawk. I have to go inside, Melinda said, half to herself. She dropped her metal claw, rubbed her hands to get some of the topsoil off, and hurried into the house taking the steps two at a time. Upstairs, her nine-month-old son, Eric, lay fussing in his crib. With dirt still under her fingernails, she picked him up to kiss him and caught a whiff of his wet diaper. At the changing table, she raised her son's legs with one hand and removed the diaper with the other, 
while she observed the stranger advancing up the front walk toward the entryway of her house. The doorbell rang, startling the baby and making his arms quiver. Melinda called over to her father, whose bedroom was across the hall, to alert him about the stranger. Her father didn't answer. Sleep often captured him these days and absented him for hours. She pinned the clean diaper together and with slow tenderness brought her son to her shoulder. She smoothed his hair the same shade of brown as her own. And at that moment, the man who had been standing outside her house appeared in front of her in the bedroom doorway, smiling dreamily, still holding the bitten apple. I used to live here, the man said quietly, when I was little. This was my room when I was small. After emphasizing the last word with a strange vehemence, he seemed to be surveying the walls and the ceiling and the floor and the windows until at last his gaze fell on Eric, the baby. The baby saw him and instead of screaming, held out his arm. Jesus, Melinda said. Who are you? What the hell are you doing here? Yes, the man said, I'm sorry. Old habits die hard. The baby was now tugging downward at Melinda's blouse buttons, one after the other, which he did whenever he was hungry. I heard him crying, the man said. I thought he might help. Is that your father? He pointed toward the second bedroom where Melinda's father dozed, his head slumped forward, a magazine in his lap. Yes, it is. He is, Melinda said. Now please leave. I don't know you. You're a trespasser. You have boundary issues. You have no right to be here. Please get the fuck out now. The baby was staring at the man. I've said please twice, she said, and I won't say it again. Quite correct, the man said apparently thinking this over. I really don't have any right to be here. He made a noise in his throat like a sheep coughing. He had the unbudging calm of a practiced intruder. Really, I didn't mean to scare you. It's just that I used to live here. I used to be here. With the hand not holding the apple, he held out his index finger to Eric and the baby distracted from the button project grabbed it. The man loosened the baby's grip, turned around, and began to walk down the stairs. If I told you everything about this house, he said as he was leaving, and if I told you about all the things in it, you wouldn't live here. I'm sorry if I frightened you. She followed him. From the landing, she watched him until he had crossed the threshold and was halfway back to his car. Then he stopped turned around and said in a loud voice, a half shout, are you desperate? You look kind of desperate to me. He waited in the same stock still posture she had seen on him earlier. He seemed to be in a state of absolute concentration on something that was not there. People were getting into this style nowadays 
really, nothing could outdo the urban zombie effect. It was post-anxiety. It promised a death you could live with. He was waiting eternally for her to answer and wouldn't move until she replied. Yes, no, she called through the screen door, but that's no business of yours. My name's Augenblick, the man said just before he got into his car. Edward Augenblick, everybody calls me Ted, and I won't bother you again. I left a business card in the living room though, if you're curious about this house. He turned one time toward her front door, behind which she was now standing. I'm not dangerous, he said, holding his apple. And the other thing is, I know you. Well, what's an, uh, what an intriguing, I mean, uh, and, and that whole collection, Griffin, and all, I mean, I think people also the title story is beloved as well, it's often quoted. Um, yeah, full of these, uh, as you say, sometimes like oddball or, or they're ordinary people, but you know, something very strange happens. But I love that point. I know you. He's telling, and he, <laughs> it's just, it's so crazy. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Uh, well, he thinks they're soulmates, so <laughs> it's so strange. He does. He does. That's right. Um, so, I, I mean, on a tangent, what's strange, I don't want to ask, it's too personal, <laughs> but what's, what's straight comes, love makes you act almost, in, you know, in strange ways. And I wonder if there were, um, we're talking about your writing, it's fictional life, but mm -hmm. what, what have you, uh, what strange or inspired ways might have you done, there's things that you might have done in your youth, you know, one gets carried away in the moment, things. Well, uh, to answer that question, maybe it would be uh, good for me to uh, say a bit about the origins of that story. Yes. Uh, I grew up in the city, uh, from which I'm now speaking to you, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is uh, in the Midwest. And for 30 years, uh, I lived elsewhere. I lived in New York, I lived in Michigan. Uh, I've done a lot of, a great deal of travel. Uh, but about 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I moved back to Minneapolis. And, uh, it's it's an odd and somewhat strange experience to move back to a place where you once grew up and you haven't been uh, for many years. And in fact, the house uh, where I was, um, essentially where I was born and where I was a baby, uh, went up for sale while I was living here and i went over to the house and um during a, a real estate open house and i walked through this place that i had a very very dim memory of uh and i thought that you know that's very interesting to try to re-inhabit a place where you once were and where you no longer belong. Uh, and 
I thought, well, you know, Americans, we're such a nomadic people. Americans are always moving one from one place to another. And only, I, I'm tempted to say only rural people have a tendency to stay uh, where they grew up. I thought it would be interesting to write a story about somebody who has just arrived to in a house who meets up with someone who says, I once lived here. I have as much of an ownership right over this place as you do. Uh, and so the story begins with two strangers meeting to begin with, and then a violation of privacy. Two things. And you put those two things together and you have a, the opening of a story. Well, it is so intriguing. And just as a side note, I can really relate to that as someone who lived in different countries and cities and, and then going back and, you know, uh, I, that is a strangeness. And I've driven past a, a home where I, not, where I wasn't born, but where I did a good bit of growing up in. And it's now a, it's now a florist and they, they <laughs> built another building. And, you know, so they're selling flowers out of, my bedroom, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right, 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 right. And do you feel that in some sense it still uh, belongs to you just a little because you, you once lived there? I don't know, but I did a huge mural in the basement that's been painted over. So I still feel I must kind of um, be there. Um, yes. But yes. I don't mean to talk about me, but I think it's something that people can relate to. You know, as you mm -hmm. say, Americans yes. are, are that's a, especially are, it's a country of reinvention so they're moving and that yes. residue you know yes. and, and and I don't want to you know jump immediately to your books on craft but uh, you did written a, a collection on the art of remembering in in an age of forgetting and and so that's that's there with all these places where we leave aspects mm -hmm. of ourselves of our lives yes that's right. And, and I think that um, part of the process of writing fiction has to do with remembering parts of yourself that are no longer active. Uh, and remembering how you were 20 years ago. I'm now 73 years old. So, um, I can remember how I was how I was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and I can even remember how I was in my 20s. And sometimes the act of writing fiction has to do with peeling back those layers and remembering what you were like and what you remember the world being like when you were younger. And sometimes not having a perfect memory is interesting because then the act of writing is an act of recovering. It's like, what happened? And then you have, it can spur uh, the writing process. Right, totally. It, it, you know, um, Borges says in, in one of his stories that if you had a perfect memory, there would be no creativity. Um, 
and the American writer Wright Morris says more or less the same thing, that in writing fiction, what we're doing is filling in the gaps that memory has left open, the parts that we can no longer remember, the parts that we can no longer reconstruct are the parts that are asking for our creative response. Uh, and I've, I've always liked that, that idea that, that memory is a great aid in creativity, but too much of it stifles it. Sure, that that it makes perfect sense to me, and it also is fascinating. And I don't, I could, oh, I, I could, I don't, I don't know what your dreaming life is like, but you know, when I've had a vivid dream, and then I read that the scientists say or whatever that that's oh, it's just some seconds of REM. It's like how could that be? I feel, I felt like I lived a whole lifetime. So, yes. is that happening as we're trying to remember? I don't know. I it still doesn't make sense to me how. Detailed dreams could take place in such a short amount of time, but um, so it's kind of that you know life flashing before your eyes, like mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. it's so fascinating. It, one wants to be. It, there's a great temptation to be aware of it, and then, well, of course, then to forget, so you can dream more. That's right. Uh, one of the curiosities of our, our dreaming is that. Uh, Freud, for example, in the interpretation of dreams, and particularly the fourth chapter of that book, um, more or less says that dreams must be interpreted. The interpretation of dreams, that dreams come to us as a kind of puzzle. Uh, but I, I'm not so sure that that's true. I, I think that as transcriptions of our feelings, uh, dreams come to us um, as, a, as a kind of emotional truth. So it's, it's not so much what you're actually seeing or saying or hearing in the dream, it's the feeling that goes with it. Uh, and it's that feeling that fades fastest when you wake up. Um, so uh, I, I think it's important, particularly for creative people to keep notebooks near their beds so that as you're falling asleep, the ideas that you're getting, uh, if they're good ones, you can write down. And when you wake up, uh, if you if you've had a dream that feels significant, you can write that down too. Uh, and not that you'll be writing that dream in your work, but that it might serve as a catalyst. Yes, I think um, that, and it's often well, it depends because I think that maybe at the way we dream when we're children is even more direct than when we're adults. Like we yes. can't like everything else, we become indirect as we get older and mm -hmm. mature, mm -hmm. you know, mature is a relative concept. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, but what's lovely about dreams and which, you know, also points to the fact that we all have that capacity to be artists of some kind, mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. but it's that we don't, the thing of, we don't hide what we want, what we desire. 
That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and in in your your dreams, it's very often the case that what you want, what you have wanted, will be very clear to you, and also a problem in your life that you haven't solved um, will also become evident to you. Uh, my most um, common dreams these days have to do with um, the city of Buffalo, New York, where I was a graduate student um, 45 years ago. Why am I dreaming about Buffalo? Well, there must be something about uh, my life uh, when I lived there that I, I still want to solve. And, and I think everybody has these sorts of um, repeating dreams that there's something you want to solve for yourself and your mind brings you different versions of it. And I don't mean to um, jump around in the chronology because I do want to speak about um, your forthcoming book mm -hmm. and um, recent ones. But when you mentioned Buffalo, um, you did uh, write The Soul Thief, which uh, it's not it, exactly. But, you know, I, it makes me want to ask because the character Nathaniel Mason has, um, you know, a breakdown. And <laughs> so mm -hmm. maybe there's still some things to be resolved. I don't mm -hmm. know. We don't have to jump there immediately, but. Well, I can just say uh, very quickly that um, some locales take on a peculiar quality for uh, the people who have lived there. And I've written an essay on the subject um, uh, and the, the, the essay is about what I call wonderlands. And a wonderland in fiction is a, is a locale or a setting that has taken on a very specific psychological and emotional coloration. It's as if feeling has bled out of the characters and has started to inhabit uh, the place. There's, there's a long tradition of this um, uh, beginning, at least as far as Shakespeare's plays in a play like Macbeth and moving up to uh, modern works like the movie uh, Black Swan or a very recent film called Get Out. And in my case, the, my Buffalo experience was complicated by the fact that there was somebody there who subsequently uh, did his best to steal my identity. Um, he claimed that Charles Baxter was his pen name, that he had written the books and stories that I had published. Uh, he was giving readings tonight, Charles Baxter, and he would appear, claiming that he was the author of my, of my work. 
Um, and I, that was many years ago, and it took me a long time before I could figure out how to write about it. That's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I don't know how know. often it happens. I just want to say, because of course, also uh, writers and artists having such, sometimes a poor, porous sense of, not poor, porous sense of Oh self. yes, no, I completely and, agree. And you can get, and you, you might feel like the stories come to you somehow, you know, by just mm -hmm. this. And then if someone starts saying you're impersonating them, you know, it's, it's, you know, it can really, it could really spark these doubts, even if though yes. you're the own author. How yes. Great. Yeah. I, I think there's a, I mean, there's a great debate going on now among writers and artists about how porous we should actually be. And whether it's legitimate to, uh, in your work, take on the identity of somebody you are not. Um, but I feel that that's at the very basis of at the very bottom, the, the most essential part of the imagination is imagining what it's like to be somebody else. And really to try to inhabit them. So I completely agree that writers have a tendency to be more porous than other people. They live in, in what you might call a thin place and the membrane between them, uh, between oneself and other people is thinner than it is for other people. Yes, but I should say, but identity theft is not the same thing. Identity, identity theft. theft is not the same thing. No, yes. no, I, I mean, yes. Oh, I really feel for you. Yes. And, you know, when you're, when you're getting your, you, you know, you're establishing your voice, you're establishing your readers. That must be so strange. Um, yes. How did your, in, not in the novel, but how did your, the, the, the person who, who took on or took credit, how did that resolve itself for? He had asked me for some poetry I had written because there was an editor on the West Coast in Los Angeles who wanted to include my poetry in an anthology. So I sent these poems to this guy whom I didn't know was claiming to be me. And he forwarded the poems to the editor and in due course, the poems appeared in uh, an anthology. And I thought, this is very strange. I've never had any dealing, I've never dealt directly with this editor. So I wrote a letter and sent it to the editor, thanking him for um, including me in the anthology. And the next time my friend, who was claiming to be me, called me, I said, oh, by the way, Michael, um, I, I wrote a letter to the editor of the anthology, and there was a long pause. And he said, Charlie, I have a terrible thing to tell you. And I said, what is that? He said, I've been telling everyone out here that I am Charles Baxter. What do you think I should do? 
<laughs> and I said, well, I think you have to tell them that you aren't me. And I also think we're not going to um, have any contact with each other from now on. And we didn't for 30 years. Um, well, the only positive thing is that at least he didn't change your name, that he wasn't taking the credit under his name. <laughs> no, that that's, tr that's true enough. That's true he enough. Was, no, he didn't. He was a, just a living, breathing avatar. Um, you know, it's strange because I think about today's, you know, we've been more and more into this kind of celebrity culture. And I think that it's encouraged among, uh, you know, certainly this current generation, it's almost to seem to have done something. It's almost seen as nearly the same thing as to have done it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yes. it's about the journey. It's about how you're, you know, enriched by that process. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I think celebrity culture has done terrible damage actually to the way that we live our lives. Uh, here in America, as you know, there's a magazine called People Magazine. Uh, and I remember when that magazine first got started uh, and I thought, that's interesting. The only people who are, who are defined as people in this magazine are celebrities. That if you're, if you're not a celebrity, you're not a person. I think the project of writing fiction is to make ordinary lives interesting again. I love that. Not to make rich and powerful people interesting. We're already forced to think about rich and powerful people. Um, instead, the goal for us should be to make people who are almost invisible worthy of the greatest attention that we can bring to them. Yeah. That's what I try to do in my fiction. Yeah, and I, and I think that on the fictional plane, um, it's, they're actually more interesting. I mean, I mean, for me, I mean, mm -hmm. unless it's I a agree. very, very flawed, rich and powerful person, I mean, because there are, you know, um, I really am more interested in those ordinary lives that become strange or, you know, but it's just more fascinating, I think, or mm -hmm. relatable too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, for many years, I taught a novel by a writer named Evan Cannell. Uh, and the novel is called Mrs. Bridge. It's a beautiful novel. Uh, and it's about a woman in Kansas City growing up and living there in the first part of the 20th century. And uh, almost anybody would say nothing happens in, in her life. There's, there's nothing monumental. But Cannell is such a great writer and is so scrupulous about detail that 
you can't stop reading it. And by the time you finish that book, you think, oh, I know, I know this woman. I know this woman as well as I might know anybody. And that's the great artistry, I think, of, of, of a good novelist to make or the ordinary seem remarkable again. I'm Lainey Sperry from a sophomore student studying history and anthropology at Barnard College. I'm an associate podcast producer and interviewer here at The Creative Process. Listening to Charles Baxter's interview, I was struck by how deeply he understands his writing on both a personal, internal level and in connection with bigger, more external world narratives. As a writer myself, I found that this can be a difficult balance to achieve, but finding it is integral to telling a story successfully. Writing a story is intensely personal and must connect with a real emotion the author has experienced in order for the story to feel authentic. Yet the beauty of writing, and really all art, is allowing other people to understand and experience that emotion in a more open and universal way. In order to resonate with readers, stories must connect with broader cultural arcs that all have access to. In the short excerpt read in discussion afterwards, Baxter illustrates perfectly how to connect personal emotions, events, and memories, like the times he's revisited past homes, with bigger cultural narratives, like America as a nomadic landscape. By using this twofold understanding, Stories are able to connect both on a personal level while also giving significance to a greater context and social experience. I also love the way that Baxter identifies memory as part of writing and storytelling. I'm really interested in this idea that all memory and remembering is in and of itself a form of telling and retelling our own stories. In writing, we're able to give voice to our memory, while also filling in the gaps to create meaning in our experiences. In my own writing, I think that memory functions as a two-sided coin, similar to how Baxter describes it. Without any memory, we have nothing to write or think about, but a flawless memory refuses imagination and creativity. It's related to this connection between art and capital T truth. I believe that finding emotional truth is the work of the artist instead of attempting an accurate documentation of experience. Really no memory is infallible and it is through the retelling of our memories that writers are able to find the emotion hidden inside the event, even if the artist's recreation doesn't perfectly match what happened. Baxter's work in creating these bonds between emotion and memory, memory and reality, develops an artistic language that all can access through their own personal experiences. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with author Charles Baxter. Yeah, I think I, I just love your, uh, I can see how it must have, um, I know that you've recently retired, but yes, for many years, you taught the novel, you taught, you know, writing, you directed um, the University mm -hmm. of Michigan writing program, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I just wanted to read something that was uh, read by, uh, and you also taught at the University of Minnesota, and then alum, uh, an MFA um, alumni said, alumna said, uh, I learned a lot from Charlie Baxter's, Baxter's workshops. Uh, he is a 
particular way of evaluating fiction at looking at what is on the page and how that matches up against the author's intentions. He taught me so much about writing and life. Um, and that was Amanda Coughlin, who has gone on mm -hmm. to be yes. uh, well recognized for her mm -hmm. own writing. Um, and I thought, mm -hmm. oh, wow, I'd love to have taken one of your classes. So I'm sorry that you recently <laughs> retired. I mean, just like a, a month or so ago, is it? Yes. Um, yes. But we are glad that you are, con you know, you need that time to write as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know the Sun Dialogue, or the Sun Collective, sorry, is coming out, your mm -hmm. collection is coming mm -hmm. out in November. I want to go mm -hmm. back to speaking of, you know, just the way you kind of capture um, the essence of, of writing um, in, in just a very interesting way. Uh, you speak about these request moments which a yes. lot of people, yeah, and it's interesting because I hadn't heard of plot being described that way, because sometimes people think plot, is it plot, is the same as story, what is the, but then by saying it's a request, it's, it's mm -hmm. no. And you just go mm -hmm. into that, and that relates to one of your more mm -hmm. most recent collections, there's something I want you to do. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. um, I feel that, that request moments are at the core of a great many stories, certainly not all stories. I don't want to make an overarching claim for this. Uh, but uh, you find, again, in, in Shakespeare's plays, you find that the opening of uh, many of his plays, of Macbeth, of Hamlet, and King Lear, all of them begin with uh, a request. Uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father appears on the parapet and says, um, there are these three things I want you to do. I want you to uh, avenge my death, honor your mother and remember me. And the thing about a request moment is that it's not a command. Uh, a command comes from someone in power who tells you to do something on pain of punishment or suffering or death. So you don't really have much choice in the matter. But if your parent or your friend or your partner or lover or spouse says, there's something I want you to do. And if you love me, you'll do it for me. And by the way, please do it by the end of the week. So there's the request, please, do this. The condition, if you love me, if you're the person I think you are, if you're really my friend, you'll do this for me. And then the story clock is set. And please do it by the end of the week. If you have all the time in the world to fulfill the request, all the energy runs out of the, of the story. 
there has to be some sense of urgency to it. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not claiming to be the inventor of these request moments. It seems to me that in, in talking about them, I really discovered something that was fairly obvious, but that I, I just hadn't seen any, any commentators talk about. Um, and uh, so I, yeah, in my book, there's something I want you to do. Almost every one of those stories has embedded somewhere in it a, a request by one character uh, to and for a, another. Uh, sometimes it's not obvious, sometimes it's buried very far down. Uh, but aren't I? I mean, it just seems to me that our lives are full of, of requests, uh, implicit and explicit, from people who seem to care about us and whom we care about, so that much of our lives we're scurrying around trying to do what people have asked us to do. No, well, yeah, it's very interesting. I hadn't heard of it, and I certainly, you know, in in this work, you know, working on the creative process, have done enough reading about craft. Um, I think what's interesting and what it illuminates, and particularly for you know young writers um, or you know emerging, is that it helps define in a more personalized way this idea of plot or story. Like they have their head around it, but when you say plot or story, that's implied in it, even though it might not be intended, that it is a, yes. plot, a path that's kind of mm -hmm. created by who. It's yeah. not saying like I want or someone else wants, has asked, has requested. Yeah. 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 And that's the real tug, that's the, that gives the, the plot, which is a kind mm -hmm. of static non-person, non um, mm -hmm. force, as you say, the impulsion of time that I want. So it gives yeah. energy actually by yeah. phrasing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is true that our, our conventional ways of thinking about plot um, tell us that the, the main character, the protagonist, wants something or is afraid of something and goes either toward the thing that he, she, or they want or backwards away from the thing that they're uh, afraid of. Uh, but in, in my thinking, very often the character is not acting on his or her own wants, but on, as you say, something somebody has asked the person to do. Uh, which seems to me much more common in a culture of groups, and crowds than it is in, in societies where there are very few people around. So I, I, I just think that um, requests that have been grafted onto us are very common in the lives that we tend to lead. Yeah, it is. It is very true, and that even if someone doesn't outright request, you know what I mean. There's this right. expectations right. of expectations. Right. We may want mm -hmm. something, 
I'm mm -hmm. out the door of this house of expectation. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, it's so interesting, and that's a very uh, and I love that that you have thematically, um, you know, in this care and the and this capture. Uh, sorry, the um, it, it allows you to think thematically in that collection. There's something I want you to do, and the, each chapter mm -hmm. there are people, but then you're thinking in terms of of their. Um, particular character as well it, it, it's it's interesting because it makes you want to read them in an interrelated way although i know they're, they're distinct um you know i'm i wonder about joy you know in terms of writing because we should also say you're a poet you know you're mm -hmm. an essayist mm -hmm. novelist um mm -hmm. just any or maybe it's a different particular project like where do you get the, where do you feel most joyful or perhaps more free or are you like the constraints of different ones? You know, I, I don't know what, how, how you feel in the making of those different mediums. Well, you know, I've been uh, writing fiction um, my entire adult life. And I feel joy intermittently when I, I feel that um, I finally have gotten something right, that um, aesthetically or otherwise, what I wanted, the effect that I wanted, the truth that I had, the image that I was trying to convey, um, appeared in the writing uh, in the way that I was hoping for. Uh, most of the time, and I first heard the, the, the late writer Dennis Johnson who came to my class at the university, and he said, you should, we need to relax. Most books fail. <laughs> he oh. said, most, most books fail Mine included, he said. Uh, and I, I think he meant that to be inspiring rather than discouraging. It, it's simply meaning that, that we all do the best we can and sometimes we, we succeed and sometimes we don't. Um, it, it is true that, that occasionally I try to get joy into a work of fiction, but happiness is is a terribly difficult um, emotion and subject to write about. Um, in fact, I've, I've written uh, an essay on this called Regarding Happiness. And, and I think joy and happiness are isolated. They tend to be isolated and in between them are the, the feelings that we have throughout most of the day. I think that that's true and then if you write about people who seem to have perfect lives and are so happy it probably creates in the average reader not everyone uh, maybe a, a sense of unhappiness or resentment so it, it works oh I think so yes yes I think that's exactly right yeah I, I mean not me exactly I don't I actually love to see happiness in people, but that might be to something to do with like the porous nature of artists that mm -hmm. I can, I mm -hmm. feel like it can belong to me too. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the great test of this, when students say to you, uh, or readers say to you, why are your characters so dark? Uh, where's, where's the happiness? You can say, tell me, what are the books in which somebody is happy all the time? Uh, there aren't any. There aren't any. Uh, the American writer Lori Colwin uh, did, in fact, write a kind of social comedy called Happy All the Time. Uh, but the title is ironic, of course, because one of the characters is far from happy all the time. Uh, it's something that we can uh, think about, but it, it's a condition that for writers is antithetical generally to the telling of stories. Oh, sure. We're, we're just interested when things go wrong. Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, stories begin when things start to go wrong. Yeah, I think when happiness appears, it's like, oh, it has to be exaggerated, like a mania, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but it's still, it would be fascinating, but I wonder, yeah, it would have to be drug-induced or something. We would something, we'd be waiting, you know, <laughs> this isn't real. And I wonder yeah. what it is about us. Um, I think that we also want to learn when we're reading to live other lives and to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that begins in childhood. One of the reasons that we like uh, to have stories read to us. And then one of the reasons we like to read stories is that stories serve as models for uh, how people, and when we're children, how animals that are lightly disguised people behave. We're learning about why things happen in the way they do. And um, I think that desire among people who enjoy reading never goes away that when we're reading fiction, we're still learning about why people do what they do. Yeah. And, and I, was just going to, I was just going to say, people who don't like to read fiction generally um, feel that they know everything they need to know about why people do what they do. And I think very often they're wrong. Yeah, there's perhaps less curiosity. And then we may say yes. there are those who might be more drawn to storytelling and other mediums. Um, yeah. But I, you know, it's, I think it's so wonderful to be able to examine it in book form because then you can really pause and reflect mm -hmm. as opposed to some mm -hmm. other. Um, mm -hmm. I want to ask, you know, what were those stories? What were those early reading experiences that might have ignited your desire? You know, and early teachers, early, um, you know, as you were before you were a writer, but you were a reader. I've, I've thought a lot about this and very often writers say, oh, I was inspired to become a, a writer when I read Shakespeare or Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Jane Austen or um, some great writer. I don't think it always works that way. 
I, I think that you can be inspired to be a writer by reading second-rate or even third-rate authors uh, who nevertheless have a spark and whose work speaks to you and welcomes you in. Um, I first felt the urge to become a writer in high school because there were some books I had read and I felt more welcome inside those books than I did in the actual world I was living in. Oh yeah, and also it can be reading those. Obviously, I, but, and I, I wouldn't have to say it has to be masters. I mean, it can be a, a children's book that could be a masterful, whatever. It could be even the illustrations or whatever, but it made mm -hmm. you curious, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Or some, whoever was reading the story to you, maybe if it was very young, you know, it made you curious. Um, or the act of going to the library. Or maybe, mm -hmm. um, you know, some writers have said to me they received a, an early, you know, youthful literary prize, you know, at their school, and they felt so eloquent, more eloquent than in life. Yes, yes. Um, I, I think um, for children, not so much for adults, but for children, there's um, a kind of comfort in reading, uh, a sort of reassurance. Uh, and, um, it, it, and it's often the case that, that writers, as you say, who may not be entirely successful socially or otherwise, feel more eloquent or wiser or more intelligible in their writing than they are in real life. I, I knew the writer William Maxwell, and if you wanted to interview him, um, you would give him a question and he would go off into another room and sit down at his typewriter and write out the answer and come back and give you the sheet of paper because he just felt, he, he used to say, my typewriter is more eloquent than I am. And, and it also speaks to the fact that writing, it can be based uh, as inspired by, you know, oral storytelling, but another yes. is visual too. Mm -hmm. The written mm -hmm. word is different than the oral. Um, mm -hmm. So that seeing the words, you know, like sometimes you say, I have, to, I have to see it written down to know what I think, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm very conscious now of books uh, having, a, because we are moving to, or have already moved to a highly visual culture, a screen culture, movies, TV, computer screens. Uh, I think it's important uh, for books sometimes to have a visual component once you start reading them. In my new novel, there's a group called The Sun Collective and they have a manifesto. And the manifesto appears in the book and I asked the book designer to give the manifesto the ugliest typeface he could find. 
so that it looked like something that had come from a typewriter or a mimeograph or a lithograph, you know, one of those little anarchist groups, you know, and, and what, their, um, what their manifesto would look like. Yeah, it's true. And even those elements like choices, uh, although the, the writer w might not always be involved in that, but choices of font, um, mm -hmm. it, it, is, it, it, it does affect how we hear. You know, we have this little thing in our ear that kind of imagines yeah. how it's. So that, that is fascinating. Um, and visual decisions. Um, I don't know if you've been involved with deciding on the covers of uh, your books uh, or is that sometimes it's left to others? Uh, generally it's left to others though the the hardback of uh, there's something I want you to do was a, a design I asked for. Um, this cover of Griffin was one they came up with and this cover of the Sun Collective was one they came up with. I'm very happy with it. Uh, I like the way it looks. Um, if you've been writing for a long time, usually they ask you for your judgment, uh, but they don't have to take it. It's, it's their, although you wrote the book, it's their commodity. They have to sell it. And you've also been adapted to other mediums, fil uh, notably film, uh, Feast of Love. And what was that process like for you? And um, was it something to learn to let go some of those artistic decisions? And Oh, very much so. Uh, they sent me the script of the Feast of Love and I asked the screenwriter whether he wanted any suggestions and he said no. Um, and I, I talked to the director who asked me to do one little thing for the movie, which I did. Um, but generally speaking, when a book is adapted for the movies, it's best for the writer just to let it go, just to get out of the way. It's not really your movie, it's their movie. Uh, and if it's good or if it's bad, uh, they are the ones mostly responsible for that. You had, you know, great, great actors in that. And I interviewed Jane Alexander. And uh, so I was looking at that for- Oh, actors. she's terrific, yes. Yes, and, she, and she's such a good champion of, I um, mean, she was a formerly president at the National Endowment for the Arts and um, right. great cons uh, conservationist. But anyway, so mm -hmm. I had been looking at that um, when I was interviewing her. Um, so, yeah, so I, and I think that's, I think if you're lucky because it was, you had some great interpreters, uh, which is not always the case. Um, but speak about Feast of Love. I think that, that that was, maybe it's, I don't know which of your books or collections is the most, um, but that, that really reached a wide readership. And just speak about it the text of that book. And... Well, I um, had been thinking uh, for a long time of a, a novel that would be thematically organized and in those uh, around a particular subject in this case 
love. And I thought for the purposes of fiction, it had to be crazy love. It had to be moonstruck love, not the kind of settled love that people who have been together for years. That's, an, that's a good subject, but it wasn't the subject of the Feast of Love. Uh, and so I began working on it. And because I was thinking of Shakespeare and because I was thinking of A Midsummer Night's Dream, I thought what I wanted really was a um, spoken, what I'd call a spoken novel in which the characters would speak. And each time someone, each time you came to a new chapter, you would know just from the sound of that person's voice who it was. I didn't want to identify the chapters with the characters' names. I thought, if, if I'm up to this, if I'm good enough for this, you'll be able to know immediately who's speaking. Um, and um, the novel, yes, I mean, the novel uh, did very well. Uh, I came to, uh, to Paris for uh, the, uh, it was the Prix Saint-Valentin, uh, the St. Valentine's Day Prize. And this little pen, which has become tarnished, um, maybe you can see it, or there's a couple. This was my gift um, from the French publisher. Um, so no, it was a it was a wonderful experience. That's that's wonderful, and yes, that is quite a challenge to not introduce the characters. But I think that that maybe it lended to its adaptability to film because it's it's a more direct way that not all not all novels are. You know, sometimes there's this remove, and you can kind of see things mm -hmm. happening out, but it's mm -hmm. it's already performed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's true. You you do lose the sound of the individual voices, um, except when they're speaking up. And because there was a lot of plot in that book, they had to shoehorn a great deal, a great many events into an hour of, and 40 minutes. So for me, it seemed a, a, a bit rushed, but you know, that's... Um, uh, th that's my judgment from years later. Yes, I think um, that, yeah, that is, is, oh, I think it's with all films that they can't come. I mean, that's, I have the pleasures of uh, writing um, and reading is that this mm -hmm. capacious and all these things you can include. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that it can embody desires with having, making them bodily. Yes. That's right. That's what I love, that sense of longing. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about your ch childhood, and I, and I know your mother, I think she was a great reader. She was definitely friends with a, a number of writers uh, that were mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. Maybe you heard stories growing up. Maybe that um, went something into your, <laughs> your longing to become a writer. I don't know. It, it may have. Uh, she and my father lived in Minneapolis 
two or three blocks away from Sinclair Lewis, who was the first American writer, I believe, to win the Nobel Prize. And he was in a bit of a decline as a writer in the 1940s, but nevertheless, they became friends. And uh, Sinclair Lewis showed up at my parents' house quite often. And uh, my mother wrote to him and he wrote back. So uh, when I was growing up, she would occasionally show me this fat collection of letters from this Nobel Prize winning writer. Um, and, and that may have had some effect on me, but I, I think it was more of what influenced me more really was that after my father died and my mother remarried, we moved out to a part of the country which was sparsely populated. And, I, and there really were very few or no neighbors. And so I began to take refuge in reading. Probably if I had lived, if I had been a kid in contemporary times, I just would have been on the internet all the time. But ours was a house where there were a lot of books. So I just took up the habit of reading um, because there was almost nobody around. Uh, so what I'm saying is that, that yes, there were writers in our lives, but, but the books also that were around the house were as influential on me uh, as the, the, these actual writers were. I don't think I ran into a, a professional writer until I was in college. And that says something to, I mean, the importance of having books in the house, but then also, and this is something that we try with the project to, you know, celebrate the importance of libraries, which are really like a playground of, we have yes. to find things in a natural way without them being mm -hmm. fed to us by algorithms on the internet. That's, that's right. That's right. Uh, I, it was a great pleasure for me as a boy to go into the Minneapolis Public Library I still remember the room where the children's books were. And I just browsed through that room. I was just as happy as could be. Um, and I, it's a great pleasure when you find a book on your own rather than having somebody recommend the book to you. You feel as if you've discovered something and you, you have a, you have a stake in it because you discovered it. And, and there's something, there is just something kind of the magic and the beauty of, of chance. Um, yeah, it's, and then and the intimacy of writing. I mean, I couldn't go on an, enough about that. Um, and also, I think it's a very democratic place and for young people where if you're reading adult books, you, you're given a special glimpse into a world yes. And, and spoken to us. They don't know who's reading it, you know. That's right. So, I mean, it's 
a great way to learn. And I'm, I'm so happy. I mean, we have students who are, you know, avid readers, but I, I think we should do all that we can to celebrate libraries, to celebrate the importance of reading because that's the critical thinking. It's spoken about craft and you've written about, mm -hmm. you've also mm -hmm. written about the, the writing life because it's a, it's oh, a yes. Patient, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think there are two main points that I would, I would make about the writing life. Uh, one is that um, the, the person who sits down at a desk like this one, in a, in a room like this one, who um, has to spend hours working on, let's say, a short story or a novel, is almost invariably going to disappoint uh, the people that whom that person lives with. Uh, because other people generally, particularly if you have children uh, or, or a, a partner, very often want you to be doing something with them. And part of the writing life just involves saying, this is what I am, this is what I do. I always do this between nine in the morning and noon. Uh, when, when my son was small, the way that I dealt with that was to put his toys underneath the desk so that while I was working, he could play down there uh, under the desk where my feet were. And some years later, I, I asked him, uh, this is back in the days when typewriters still made a lot of noise, when I was typing late at night, whether it would keep him awake. And he said, no, I find it comforting. Um, because it was it was just what I do, what I did. That's the that's the first point. The second point I think I would say is that often non-writers say to me, "How can you stand to sit in a chair for hours on end working on whatever it is you're working on?" And my honest answer is, there is no other place I would rather be. Uh, I, this is where I want to be. I don't want to be at a baseball game. I don't want to go out shopping. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to jog. I want to be here doing this. That doesn't mean that, or I should say, it, it also means that the work is not easy. It's hard work. Um, but if, if you're a writer, you, you end up learning to take pleasure in the... Uh, in the work, in the complexity of it, and and in the pleasure of getting something right. I think 
I think that's a beautiful message. So I, you know, young writers, and I know you know you have to accustom yourself to loving <laughs> being indoors and being at that desk. But once you discover it, I mean, it's yes, yes, it's yes, playground. Yeah, yeah, I believe there's a word in German. The word is Sitzfleisch. <laughs> sitting flesh, being able just to sit for a long period uh, and uh, being comfortable with that. Yes. And so I finally, because we've gone, I've been taking time from you and your writing life, but I want to say, because this is an educational initiative, and I think now, particularly in recent months, we've all of us been thinking about the future and the kind of... Um, I mean, not just with the pandemic and, and health, but, you know, global warming or social justice, mm -hmm. all these things at the mm -hmm. forefront. Uh, so I do, you know, as you think about these systems and these things that we could, our education system, the things we might improve and make better. I mean, what are some of, what would you like to do in order to, you know, leave the world a better place for future generations? And what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? That's a great question. But it's a tough one. Uh, and um, the, the best way I can answer it is to say, yes, we are all intrigued or fascinated by this global village that's been created by the internet. But I think it's important to remember that much of what you see and hear and read on the internet gets forgotten. It, it doesn't have the kind of staying power that literature has. So, you know, I, I suppose I, I would say um, and advise young people to try um, getting off, <laughs> I, I can anticipate how unpopular this piece of advice is, is going to be, I, I get off their computers for uh, an experimental time in the evening and start to prowl around in the great books of the past until you find a book that speaks to you. As the, Quakers say something that speaks to your condition. And again, to go back to what you said, this has everything to do with libraries. This has everything to do with making books available at a reasonable cost to young people. It has everything to do with what our teachers come into the classrooms. And uh, of what they or on what, what they speak on behalf of. So there are many systems, uh, libraries, teachers, bookstores that are 
available and comfortable to go into where you're not harassed, where you can sit down and look at a book and decide whether you want to read it. Um, I, I, I'm hoping all of these systems, all of these institutions survive and grow stronger because I think, uh, to quote the American poet, William Carlos Williams, it is difficult, let me, I want to get this right. It is difficult to get the news from poems, but people die every day for want of what is found there. In other words, it's difficult to get the news from poems, but if you, if you, if you do get the news from poems, it, it can give you life. And it's a more, I mean, I think as you say that books are, a lot of what we see on the screens is a kind of false reflection or a adrenalized uh, reflection. Um, yeah, books. it's the wrong kind of intimacy. Mm -hmm. I, I like that, the wrong kind of intimacy. We need to, you know, reclaim for ourselves the right to have stillness and reflection. Exactly. And, exactly and, right. And 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 you and that you find you know in books, um, you know it's it's your as much as you're taking in somebody else's reflections, your it's your own, you know. Yes. Um, yes. And cultivating your I'm all for that. You know, with this project, cultivating your your own imagination. You know, as you're yes. listening to that of others. Mm -hmm. So I mean that that is a and we yeah we can we don't have to move so fast. It's not, I don't know where yeah. we're going. We seem to make mistakes when we move <laughs> it's too fast. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's beautiful. And yes, and the teachers and the libraries and all those systems of uh, reflection uh, and the writers, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you, Charles Baxter, to inviting us into your imaginative world for creating all these characters full of you know, strangeness and comedy and um, making ordinary lives fascinating. Um, and just, uh, you know, and, and for all you've done to support other, you know, young writers and to teach mm -hmm. us about writing and life. Um, thank you for adding your voice to the creative You're welcome, thank you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lainey Sperry Fromm. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Adolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.